And now, Lord God, we ask that uh, your goodness would flow from the throne and through us as your word preached. We ask that you would help us to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. As I hope you know, we've been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. And last time in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, we read this. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We spun that out a bit and realized that all space and time is like a stage set for the revelation of beauty, eternal beauty. This world is a beauty pageant. We each try to win the beauty pageant, but we're each afraid that time will end with a revelation that we're not beautiful, but beasts, like apes on some planet of apes, kind of like this. the awesome end of the 1968 classic film Planet of the Apes. I hope you're not offended with Charlton Heston what he, with what he said because it's actually a rather um, theologically accurate sort of statement. Charlton Heston's character sees the apocalypse. Apocalypse means revelation or unveiling. He sees that man is no better than the apes and so he asks God to damn them all to hell and yet he's already in hell because he realizes that he's nothing but a beast. Well, in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, Solomon writes, God has made all things beautiful in its time, in their time. Then in 3.18, Solomon writes this, I said in my heart with regard to the children of Ha'adam, the Adam, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. God is testing us, not so that he can find out something about us, he's testing us so that we can find out something about ourselves, that we are but beasts. So, you exist in time, which ends in an apocalypse, which is the unveiling of a truth by which you will see that you yourself are but beast. You know, when Planet of the Apes came out in 1968, it caused something of a stir among Christians, for it implied that men are no better than apes. 
And that reminded folks of Charles Darwin who taught that men evolved from apes. Well, Solomon doesn't argue that men evolved from apes. He claims that they still are apes. They're beasts. And beasts do not win beauty pageants. Beasts are unprincipled, self-centered. A beast sees something good and just takes the good and consumes the good. A beast can be beautiful, right? A beast can be beautiful, and yet what a beast does is ugly. Beasts consume life to save their own life. They consume body broken and bloodshed. They consume life and excrete death until they die. And now you may say, that's not me. That's not me. I don't consume life. I consume chicken. It comes in a nice cellophane wrapper. I get it down at the Safeway. Well, Solomon writes this. I said in my heart with regard to the children of Adam, the Adam, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, literally one ruach, one breath. And man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. That's quite a statement. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, or as he said earlier, find good in his toil, for that's his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Beasts oppress each other. They exercise power, one over the other. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Did you get that? Both the oppressors and the oppressed need comfort, like comfort is the point. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been. What a statement. He who has not yet been. As if a person is somehow eternal and yet comes to be in space and time. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after ruach, after wind. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. It's, it's all a desire to take your neighbor's good and consume that good like, like a beast. We, we are beasts and all our toil is envy. Dang. Do you think Solomon really meant that? I, ironically, that sounds an awful lot like Charles Darwin or at least some of the followers of Charles Darwin. We are beasts and all our toil is, is, is envy. In fact, envy creates us beasts, according to Darwinists. They refer to the idea as the survival of the fittest. It's the idea that life is the result of 
competition. Competition occurs when two organisms envy or desire the same good, and so they compete or they fight for that good, like beasts. According to John in the New Testament, the whole world is under the power of a beast, a dragon. C.S. Lewis once wrote, you will seldom find more than one dragon in the same country. You see, that's because a dragon eats all of his competitors, his neighbors. A dragon's a beast. There is nothing a dragon likes so well as fresh dragon, writes C.S. Lewis. Well, Darwin and Solomon argue that we are beasts and all of our toil is envy. Some, some even say life is the product of envy, the survival of the fittest. Friedrich Nietzsche writes, what is good? Power. What is bad? Weakness. You know, Adolf Hitler had his soldiers carry Nietzsche with them in their knapsacks into war because Hitler believed that the Aryan race was the next evolutionary step. But it's not just Hitler. It's all politics, right? It's all the politics of envy. I mean, Democrat, Republican, capitalist, or communist, they all point to the good and assume that you envy the good. All politics is the management of envy. With envy. Doesn't our economy run on envy? I mean, doesn't really just about every commercial that you see appeal to your envy? Don't we teach that competition is good and in fact teaching is competition? Our entire educational system runs on envy. So why should I learn math? Why should I study history? Why should I learn to paint or sing or, or, or dance? Why? Not because I want to dance with my neighbor but because I want an A in order to beat my neighbor. That's why I should dance. In the Revelation, John sees the dragon. He makes war upon the woman who appears to be us. He's thrown down uh, to the earth and, and then he stands on the sand of the sea and out of the sea rises a beast. This beast is political power like Rome and Greece and Persia and Babylon. And, and then John sees another beast rising out of the land. This beast is religious power, the false prophet. It looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. That really reminds me of an awful lot of, of religion. We advertise the lamb, but we speak like a dragon. We advertise love and we teach envy. And that kind of makes some sense, because think about it. I mean, what's the natural way to preach against envy? Isn't it to point out the ugliness of envy and the beauty of love and then say, wouldn't you like to love and not envy? Just look at the beauty of those people that don't envy. You know, heaven is a place where people no longer envy, where there's no envy. Don't you envy those that don't envy? You know, you better try harder not to envy by envying those that don't 
envy. In other words, see the good? Oh, you ought to take the good and consume the good and make yourself good and save yourself. You better save yourself. And yet, ironically, that is exactly how you damn yourself. He who seeks to save his life will lose it, said Jesus. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it, will save it. This is actually a bumper sticker that like someone put on their car or something. It's a Jesus fish, a Jesus fish, because you've all seen the Jesus fish, right? It's a Jesus fish eating the Darwin fish. You see how twisted that is? I mean, shouldn't the Darwin fish be eating the Jesus fish because the Jesus fish said to the Darwin fish, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. You know, I was a geology major. University of Colorado, and in all seriousness, I think the most ardent Darwinists that I've ever met called themselves Christians. They believe that they are most fit to be saved because they took knowledge of the good and made themselves good, and so they will eternally win and find joy in the fact that others eternally lose endlessly, endlessly suffer. It's hard for me to imagine anything more beastly than that. You see, I think I'm kind of better than them. Because I, I see that. So I win. <laughs> and they lose. Which makes me more beastly than them. See how seductive that is? Whew. You know, I've really had to talk to God about this quite a bit, and we still need to talk quite a bit more, but I think I always want to be the best. Think about it. Anytime you want to be the best at something, aren't you envying the good in someone? If, if I want to be the best at swimming, aren't I envying the good in Michael Phelps? If I want to be the best at running, aren't I envying the good in Hussein Bolt? If I want to be the best at preaching, aren't I envying the good in Carl Wheeler or Kathleen or Francis or Paul Young or Billy Graham? And what is the good in Billy Graham? Well, isn't it the Spirit of God in Billy Graham that produces the fruit of the Spirit on Billy Graham? And therefore, when I envy the good in my neighbor, it's like envying the fruit on a tree that is my neighbor, and so I just take that fruit and everything dies. I take the fruit and I like crucify the good. I catch the wind in a jar, and then it's no longer the wind. Biblically speaking, 
I think the only time it's right to desire to be the best at something is when you're desiring to be the best at being yourself. Which I think would mean that you are no longer trying to be beautiful, you just are beautiful. <laughs> like, like a little child. You see, um, I think they see themselves reflected in my eyes. I think it's envy that makes us not want to be like little children that enter the, the kingdom. Uh, little children that enter the kingdom. You see, envy is like the energy that causes us to climb that, that ladder that we talked about two weeks ago. Do you remember that? It's like the energy uh, that causes us uh, uh, to move in the, in the aesthetic stage when we consume the good and into the ethical stage when uh, we consume knowledge of the good. It, it's like the energy of political power and the energy of religious power. It's the energy of the survival of the fittest that makes us want to climb to the top of the ladder. And you may say to yourself, well, Peter, that's only natural. That's the way of the world. Exactly. That is exactly my point. We all climb the ladder for we want to reach the top of the food chain. We want to be the good that we see at the top of the ladder. We want to be the king of the beast, like a lion. We all want to be the lion. Well, anyway, maybe Solomon was right. And all our toil and striving is envy, even though we call it love. Maybe we really are beasts, even though we pretend to be human. Maybe our situation is a bit like this. Once upon a time in a faraway land, a young prince lived in a shining castle. Although he had everything his heart desired, the prince was spoiled, selfish, and unkind. But then, one winter's night, an old beggar woman came to the castle and offered him a single rose in return for shelter from the bitter cold. Repulsed by her haggard appearance, the prince sneered at the gift and turned the old woman away. But she warned him not to be deceived by appearances, for beauty is found within. And when he dismissed her again, the old woman's ugliness melted away to reveal a beautiful enchantress. The prince tried to apologize, but it was too late, for she had seen that there was no love in his heart, and as punishment, she transformed him into a hideous beast and placed a powerful spell on the castle and all who lived there. Ashamed of his monstrous form, the beast concealed himself inside his castle with a magic mirror as his only window to the outside world. The rose she had offered was truly an enchanted rose, which if he could learn to love another and earn her love in return by the time the last petal fell, then the spell would be broken. If not, 
he would be doomed to remain a beast for all time. As the years passed, he fell into despair and lost all hope. For who could ever learn to love a beast? Beauty and the Beast is a traditional French fairy tale, and it's not perfect, yet it should sound familiar. I learned this on Wikipedia. You know what the name of the prince is in Beauty and the Beast? Adam, yeah, Adam. And please note this, the, the curse didn't turn him into a beast. The curse just made it obvious to Adam that he already was a beast. So Adam is a beast hiding alone in his castle with a mirror and a rose, kind of like eternity in his heart. And so now he has some knowledge of beauty, but he can't make himself beautiful. And who would ever love a beast? Maybe we really are beasts. And now you might say, hey, didn't God breathe his breath into man? Didn't God make man in his own image, the image of God? Well, it turns out in scripture that only one man, one Adam, is said to be in the image of God. You can check this out, but Colossians 1.15, he is the image, singular, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the body, the firstborn from the dead. Paul calls him the last, or the eschatos, the ultimate Adam, in Romans 5, he tells us that the first Adam, that first Adam was like a type, a tupas, an imprint of the last Adam, like an empty space in which the true Adam is revealed, unveiled, apocalypto. So we're like the shadow of the image of God, like a vanity of vanities. We think we're men, but we don't even know what a man is until we meet Ha'adam, the Adam the firstborn of all creation, the head of the body, which is us. Crazy stuff. Well, in Genesis 9, 4, God says something crazy to Noah. Check this out. Listen closely. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast and from Ha'adam, the Adam, from his fellow, Ish, that's the common word for man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of Ha'adam, the man. Whoever sheds the blood of the man, by the man shall his blood be shed. For God made the man, Ha'adam, in his own image. You know, scripture says that the ruach, uh, the, 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 the breath, uh, is life. The breath is life, and, and the life is in the blood. And we know that blood circulates through a body, bringing life to all of its members. And scripture tells us that we are a body, a body united under one head, who is Christ. We are the body of Ha'adam, the Adam. Jesus is the Christ. On the sixth day of creation, God breathes his neshama, breath of life, into dust and the man becomes a living nephesh, a soul. But all the beasts are also nephesh. <laughs> and all of them also have neshama. So it's just like Solomon says, man and beast have the same breath. 
they all take the breath and then die. I once did a detailed search and discovered that although every man and woman, every beast, receives the breath of life, no Adam is said to surrender that breath until all four Gospels record that Jesus, the ultimate Adam, surrenders his spirit on a tree in a garden and dies. At that tree, the Adam surrenders the breath and the blood He loses his life and finds it. And in this is love, says scripture. Love is surrendering your life. The life is in the blood. So God says to Noah, for your lifeblood, I require a reckoning. And Noah offered the blood of beasts. You know, in most places, for most of history, to eat meat was to sacrifice. Sacrifice was a way of thanking the giver of life for the life that you took and you ate. Americans usually just take life like chicken meat and nice cellophane wrappers and seldom give thanks and think we're somehow sophisticated. Beasts never give thanks. Israel sacrificed in the tabernacle. And then the temple originally built by Solomon until Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll build it with my own body. That temple is living and eternal and that temple is you, who you truly are. Because of bad theology, most people think sacrifice is all about appeasing a very temperamental and bloodthirsty God. And maybe God is bloodthirsty. But he's bloodthirsty like your heart is bloodthirsty. It pumps blood to every member of your body and receives blood from every member of your body. The life is in the blood. So this much is true for every member of your body. Each member of your body must lose its blood to receive more blood full of ruach. Each must lose its life to find it. Each must expire the life to inspire the life and in this is life. The circulation of blood. If one of the members of your body, my body, or Christ's body envies the life and so takes the life and hangs on to the life, it damns the life and damns itself and everything dies. It may look alive for a day or so, but then it becomes to get all like necrotic. It begins to die. It gets really, really ugly. Death is ugly. But life, which is the death of death, is beautiful. Well, anyway, Solomon writes, then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after ruach, spirit, breath of God, life, and him was life, writes, writes John. Well, Solomon writes, all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy. All. I mean, gosh, if that's true, maybe we should do nothing. Next verse. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. (laughs) If we do nothing, we'll starve. We'll end up consuming our own flesh till we die. (laughs) And if we do something, it's envy. 
And envy is also eating our own flesh until we die. You know, scripture refers to your neighbor as your own flesh. So when I compete with my neighbor, I'm competing with my own flesh. Stop it! I'm sorry. I hate when my body does that. (laughs) Actually, I was faking. My body doesn't do that. Why? Because my body parts don't compete with each other. They don't envy the good, one in the other. They constantly sacrifice the good, one to another. They constantly bleed, one into another. Now listen really close. They don't pump the blood. They surrender to the power of the flow of the blood, pumped by the heart. Logically, think about this. If Solomon is right, if all you do is envy, then if you do anything but envy, it's not you that's doing it, but the heart. It's the heart uh, in the center of the body, like the temple in the center of Jerusalem, like Jesus from the bosom of the Father. Well, Solomon continues, better the handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the ruach, the spirit, the breath, the life, the good. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or daughter, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? As if that's the point. This also is vanity and an unhappy business, literally the evil business. He's alone like a dragon so he can consumes the good and never gives the good to another. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone... Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his neighbor. So what is the reward? To use Solomon's terms, what is the good that they find in their toil? I mean, is it simply a lift? or a bit of warmth that you could get from an electric heater, or is it love? But you see, love is not a possession. Love is not the result of your toil. Love is something you find in your toil. Love is not something you can own, and if you think you own it, it dies within you. Love is not something you can possess. Love must possess you. Love is not something you can do. It must do you. It must flow through you and into another. Love is not something smaller than you, like the things that you envy and possess. Love is infinitely larger than you, and love is jealous for you. Love must own you and flow through you like a river. All human toil is powered by envy. But love is not human toil. God is love. And he who loves is born of God 
and knows God. Then Solomon writes this, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know, we confess that God is three persons and one substance, and that substance is love. And love is life. We are being made in God's image, but we are not finished in his image until we learn to love, and love is life. We come to the tree of life at the end of the sixth day, the end of the ages, in a garden. I've said this many, many times, and I need to say it many, many more. The survival of the fittest does not explain life. It explains the limits of life. It explains death. It explains the way of this world. But it doesn't explain life itself. Life is not the survival of the fittest. Life is not envy. Life is not the survival of the fittest. Life is the sacrifice of the fittest. Life is love. Life is one molecule sacrificing for another molecule. One cell sacrificing for another cell. One body part sacrificing for another body part. Sacrificing blood and the life is in the blood. It's when the sacrifice stops that the organism dies. If you consider your life to be your own life, well, you'll envy everyone else's life. You'll live like a beast and die like a beast and that's ugly. But what if your life really isn't your life and life is much bigger than you? What if life owns you? What if life is like an infinite river of sacrificial love? Well, when one falls and another lifts up, we see good, we find good in our toil. Maybe that's the reason all have fallen. To see the one who lifts up. The good in our toil. And Jesus said, God alone is good. And now Solomon sees something that baffles commentators, okay? So put your thinking caps on and think with me for a minute. This is what he sees. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Maybe that was Solomon at some point. Better was the poor and wise youth, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. Some think that Solomon is talking about Joseph. He went from prison to the throne, but he wasn't born poor. And not all that are under the sun were led by him. Some think that Solomon is talking about his father, David. He was born poor and went to the throne, but wasn't in, in, in prison. And, and he didn't lead uh, everyone under the sun. They were not all led by him. I, I think Solomon is picturing Jesus. And you know, both David and Joseph are foreshadowings or pictures of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. He is Lord of all who are under the sun, and he leads all who are under the sun, but not all rejoice in him. Even those who name him 
don't rejoice in him. Millions of people name him, but actually hate him, for he is love poured out. He is grace. Jesus is wisdom, born poor and imprisoned in flesh for each one of us in order to be enthroned on a cross and stand in the king's place. Jesus is the lamb of God standing on the very throne of God as if he were, uh, 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 had been slain. And, and, and he only does what he sees his father doing. That's what he said. He always takes his advice. Revelation 5, John hears a voice cry out, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. The lion is the king of the beasts. He is the top of the food chain. He, he is the good that we all desire to conquer. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. John looks and he sees a lamb standing on the throne as if he'd been slain. Do you understand? The lion is the lamb. And the lamb is the lion. The first is last and the last is first and that pretty much obliterates all competition. All envy. The lion and lamb is the word of God which is the wisdom of God. From the throne flows a river of life and the life is in the blood. In him is life and the life is the light of men. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the revelation of love. He's beauty and we are but beasts and all our toil is the envy of him. So you see the world is a beauty pageant but you cannot make yourself beautiful through envy. For envy is the opposite of beauty. Beauty is love. So how can you win the beauty pageant? Number one, stop trying. Because it only makes you ugly. That's called sin. Number two, admit that you're a beast. That's called confession. Number three, worship beauty. Admitting that all three steps are the work of beauty. That's called faith in grace. In the Revelation, John sees the beautiful one standing on the throne and every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them is worshiping this lamb on the throne. And then John watches as the dragon, the beast from the land and the beast from the sea are conquered. And then John sees the bride descending from heaven and she, get this, has the glory of God. She's eternal. She is who you truly are. She is the temple and body of beauty. And so this is beauty. And he makes you beautiful in time. Beauty exposes the beast, kills the beast, and transforms the beast into beauty. Beauty exposes the beast. You see, the cross of Christ is the apocalypse at the end of the age that exposes the fact that we are but beasts on the planet of apes. When we envy the good, what do we envy? We envy God and we crucify God in flesh like beasts. Beasts kill beauty. And get this, beauty kills the beast. 
The cross reveals that all the good we take, God freely gives, and so there's no point to our envy. All things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God, writes Paul. And he says this slight momentary affliction prepares us for what? An eternal weight of glory beyond compare. There's no point in the comparison. Why? Because, well, because beauty belongs to the whole body, and it flows through the body like an infinite river, an infinite river of life. So it, it is beauty that kills the beast. It was beauty that killed the beast, and, and I think you already know that because you saw the movie. What does it matter? Airplanes got him. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. It's not tanks, guns, and ammo that kill the beast. It was beauty killed the beast. Beauty not only kills the beast, but beauty resurrects the beast and transforms him into beauty. And beauty and the beast, Adam, the beast, wants beauty, and so he, remember, he captures beauty. But in the end, beauty captures Adam. Uh, beauty exposes him, kills him, resurrects him, and transforms him into beauty. Belle, which is really just a French word for, for beauty, sacrifices her life for another, and Adam sees it. He sees it, and, and then he sacrifices a little bit for Belle. And then Belle sacrifices her life for Adam. And then he loses his life for beauty and finds it. Song as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast. And so I used to watch that with my girls. Uh, so Adam learns to love because he has been loved and the curse is broken and everything becomes new. I mean, the teapot comes to life. The candle comes to life. The curse is broken over the entire kingdom. Adam and beauty marry. That means they, be we didn't explain this to the girls at the time, but that means they become one body and one blood and they live happily ever after. That's the gospel. And of course, in scripture, all humanity is a bride. 
who acts like a beast, and Jesus is the groom who makes us beautiful with his love. He makes us his own body, the body of beauty. You can't win the beauty pageant with envy because envy is the opposite of beauty. You can only win the beauty pageant because beauty has won you. And when you see it, you will live beautifully. And so on the night that he was betrayed, which appears to have been the Passover, when Israel would sacrifice a lamb, the Lion of Judah took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant. Oh, and remember, it's a marriage covenant. This cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The life is in the blood. So you see, I think this is the throne. And this is the lion who is a lamb. And we are the beasts. And beauty says to us, eat me. Drink me. Become me. I love you. So see him and you will worship him and you will live beautifully. So what advantage does man have over the beast? It's a really fascinating question. Solomon says, says none, so maybe like, why well, don't deserve anything or have preeminence over the beast is how you could, a, a beast like our dog Inga. But, but Psalm 49 says this, man in his pomp, got some pomp? Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. So we have an understanding that the beast does not have. I think maybe we understand that God makes all things beautiful in time. And we begin to understand how he does it with his very own body and blood. In other words, I think you could say it this way. We are beginning to know good and evil with the fruit that we took from the tree. And we are beginning to have life. And because we understand, we begin to worship. Even in this time. You know, I really think every message, every message I preach is basically this. Love is not the survival of the fittest. Love is the sacrifice of the fittest for all that they might love. And why then do we love? Because we understand that and we worship. So you can come to church and I could give you a bunch of laws like this is how beastly you are and I kind of try to do that at the start of every sermon. 
But we always end up back at this table and the point is worship. Why? Because you can't make yourself a not beast by trying. You can only make yourself non-beastly by worshiping and receiving the life that flows from the throne and is manifest in your body as you go out from this place into the world. That's what a worship service is. Your whole life is to be worshiped, but a worship is a place where you remember that truth. And that's why it's important to find ways to worship. And hopefully this is a way that you can do it. So, so now, all I'm saying is believe the gospel and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.